Okay. Let's talk about Malachi. You should be there by now. Malachi 2 is where we'll eventually be. I want you to imagine that you went to a, a football game with me. I don't know. Let's just, like tonight. And we're watching the Eagles play and we're watching them sort of victory against the Cowboys. And we score another touchdown and we all stand up and we're cheering and like in our hearts is all of this joy. And then you hear the fight song, the first notes of the fight song kicking in and it comes time to sing. And you look over at me and I say... You'd say, like, what are you doing? You'd say, like, not enough volume, man. Give me some volume here. Or you can imagine if you were, uh, let's just say, like a high school literature class, and you're going through your time where you're looking at Shakespearean sonnets, and a student is assigned a sonnet, and they they go up in front to read their sonnet, and they get up there, And this is how they read Shakespeare. Shall I compare to thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. And summer's lease hath all too short a date. Now, now, some of you who actually teach feel like that is what high schoolers sound like when they read Shakespeare. <laughs> but it's not what you should sound like when you're reading Shakespeare, right? This is, this is a great sonnet of Shakespeare, but I destroyed it with my tone. In fact, both with my singing the fight song and with the sonnet, I was so wrong in my tone or my volume or my voice so as to, as to almost desecrate the work itself. It would be better had I not done it. Because voice and tone goes into these things to make them correct. Well, today in Scripture, uh, the prophets, the prophets are often, uh, to our ears, they're often loud, or maybe you might even construe them as, as uh, frustrated. Uh, one of the reasons for that is because they, God sends people prophets when something is really wrong. So the prophets were not fortune tellers. They were preachers who preached against injustice. And so they are frustrated. But it's important when we read the prophets to be careful that, that we don't tone down, literally tone them down in such a way because we could... If in wanting to make it so that our ears were relaxed in processing or, or our souls were relaxed in processing what it was to say, what it was to have to say, if we tone it down so much, we might actually lose the heart of the message that they're giving. My temptation, when you come to a place like Malachi or Jeremiah or any one of these, is maybe to back it off a little bit because you don't want to scare people away or um, 
you don't want them to think that, you know, this is not all about Jesus or that God isn't loving. And I, I rather think that the proper study of the word is to preach the prophets in the tone and voice that God sent them and then to preach the gospel in the tone and voice that God sent Christ. Because there's nothing the Old Testament has to say that Christ has not fulfilled. And so this morning I just want to say, because it's, at some level we're dealing on marriage and divorce, some level, okay? And if it comes to you in a way where it just feels like uh, I'm getting bashed against the rocks by the words of the prophets, I want you to know that there is a greater voice that's come. And that greater voice doesn't disagree with this word, but it speaks a better word. It speaks a word of mercy, speaks a word of forgiveness, and and I don't want us to lose that. So I want to start there, and I want us to we'll, we'll end with Christ. But in the midst, I want, I would love for us to know, want to know what God has to say in the tone and voice that he gives it. All right. Speaking of that, Malachi's preaching at a low point for Israel, okay? So we're at a time in Israel's history when Malachi's writing where nothing is working out. They've come home from exile, but nothing... They didn't come home with victory. They didn't come home with brightness. It just went, left exile and entered into another very hard situation. And they're looking all around them at all that's wrong. And they're attributing what's wrong to God. Somehow God's failed or somehow he's not loving. And that's how this book started. This book started with the Lord presuming what they were saying in their hearts. And he starts with, you know, I've loved you, don't you? To which... He sort of puts their response, how have you loved us? So at the heart of this whole letter is a people who feel, because of their circumstances, like God doesn't love them. And God starts the book of Malachi with, I do love you. And in fact, the problem, you have the problem all backwards. Actually, the opposite is true. You do not really love me. And so he's been going through ways, particular ways, where they say they love God with their lips, but with their life, they don't love the Lord. And so last week we looked at the nature of their worship, how they were bringing unsuitable sacrifices to the Lord, and how they found the worship of God to be tedious. And God called that out. And and today he's going to call out sort of the life they're living away from the altar. That's maybe how I'd like us to start thinking is this morning I want to invite you to think not of how you worship the Lord here, but the life you live away from the altar of God and what that might say. Okay. Now, I have all the scriptures on the screen today. We're going to start in the 10th verse. In fact, I want you to feel free to walk along with me here because we're going to go slow enough that if you're staring at your page, you're you're going to start going ahead and getting all interested in other stuff. And in this way, you can just follow along. And by the way, if you've never actually found Malachi in your Bible, now you can look at the screen and no one knows. So uh, let's just look at the 10th verse. The writer, the prophet, posits a question here. He says, Have we not all one Father? Has Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? 
So he, it's kind of a logical argument at first. He says, and he's speaking to the people of Israel, okay, to the people who do know that God, Yahweh, is their father, okay? He says, isn't God my father and your father? Isn't God, didn't God create me and God create you? He's, he's creating a playing field of equality. This is a, a playing field where there's a spirit of equality and commonality. What God wants for you, God wants for me. What God wills for you, God wills for me. The covenant of God that he gave you, he gave to me. There's, there's this solidarity beneath the Lord. Which posits the question he asks, which is, how is it then that you are being so faithless to one another? Why is it that you're treating someone as though God is not their father or that God did not create them? Why are you treating someone else as though the blessings of the covenant don't apply to them? He's, the word faithless there in verse 10, you have to think of that as the sharpest, hardest expression of faithless. Not like your mom told you to vacuum your room and you forgot, and so, sorry, mom, I, was, I, was, I know you wouldn't say this, but sort of think like I was faithless to do what you told me to do. Not that soft kind of faithless. Some of your Bibles might even say treacherous or betrayal here. It's, it's the faithlessness of infidelity that's coming up. So the point he's saying is, is you claim to be beneath a common covenant and yet you're mistreating one another in really profound ways. And your mistreatment of one another is an expression, expresses to me, and gets in the way of worship. That's how he starts this out. We might say that last week, there was a real interest in how they were profaning the name of God. All through last week was, uh, the Lord will make his name great throughout all the earth. The Lord will make his name great. His Lord is resetting his name up because what was happening? It was an issue of vertical worship. This week, uh, in chapter 2, the concept of covenant is what comes out. You're profaning the covenant of your forefathers. God's given a law for the people on how the people are supposed to relate to him and to one another, and you're not observing it. That's what's at the root here. Now I'm going to read 11a, and I just to gain a sense of God's tone here. He says, Judah has been faithless. Once again, that, that could be treacherous. Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Any sense? I mean, it sounds like it's a big deal. You've been treacherous. And in your betrayal, you've done detestable things. That's what he's saying. Which should make us go, well, what? Man. What is that? And it's in the second half of the verse. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, the, 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 way, the way they're arranged is not actually the, the, it's not the bigger crime first and the lesser crime second. It's the, it's the bigger crime second and the fruit of that crime first. So, You've married a woman of a foreign god. He's saying you've brought into the people of God foreign idolatry and paganism. You've welcomed that in, and as a result, your worship at the altar is profaned. The, the desecration of the sanctuary is the, is the product of the fact that they've invited, in, they've invited 
idolatrous worship in. So it's not simply that they married a foreigner. I want, want you to, this is not a question of xenophobia or of ethnocentrism, okay? This is theism. This is strong monotheism at work here. The men of Israel have chosen to marry people of foreign gods, and though they have not required that those people become Hebrew. Those people have not entered into the covenant of God. Rather, they've entered into the people of God with the covenants of their own gods, their own worship, their own style. And he's saying it's abominable. In fact, you get the impression here, and I'll say one of the reasons I have the impression here is because Malachi's writing, when we know in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah this exact thing was happening, that this marrying women of who worshipped foreign gods and bringing them in, this happened all the way up to including the priesthood. So it, ha- it has here in verse 11, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of our Lord. Well, right before it, 11a, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Do you hear that? Israel and in Jerusalem. There's you're walking up the mountain of God towards the city of God. It's, he's saying this problem has happened all the way up in towards the temple. You have a priest who's sacrificing to Yahweh as though God is the only true God and yet his wife is sacrificing to Baal or Moloch or Marduk or Ash Ishtar, or whoever it is. This, is this, the polluted marriage is polluting the people. I don't want us to think, when we see foreign, I don't want us to think it's the person. It's the faith that's the problem. I'll show you, the word foreign sometimes, we think of it as like, oh, that means German or Chinese. But foreign can also mean something strange that shouldn't be there. So you pollute, it's a pollution. So in, in my background, flying, on the flight line, we had posters when you would go out to fly warning against FOD, F-O-D, FOD. It's an acronym. It means foreign object damage. Because a lot of smaller type airplanes with big motors, they are like vacuum cleaners. When they power up, they can suck all sorts of things. They can ingest all sorts of things. And so if a crew chief lose his screwdriver around, well, that gets sucked into the motor. Or if there's big rocks that are on the runway, well, that gets sucked into the motors. And so there's always this, like, posters with Uncle Sam saying, do your job, watch out for FOD, right? All these sorts of patriotic ways of convincing you to pick stuff up. We would even, every now and then throughout the year, we would all get out on the flight line, 100, 150 of us shoulder to shoulder, and we'd walk the whole runway looking for something that was on the runway to pick up. Because you've got to get rid of the FOD. Why? Because what we're trying to do there is a very important, very delicate, very explosive, very careful, technical sort of thing. And a little bit of a foreign object can ruin the whole thing. That's what he's saying. Like a surgeon's room, how they clean it. They clean it so much because they don't want any foreign bacteria there. They don't want any foreign element in the room. Why? Because the doctors are at the process of giving life, restoring life, and something foreign can destroy the whole thing. That's what God's saying. He says, you have, even up into the priesthood, 
invited in things that threaten everything we're trying to do. And you worship. Let's just stop here. Because this, this sermon is, Malachi is sort of written like this, and then another thing. So before we go on to the next thing, I just want, to, want you to think, is there a way in your own life? I'm not asking, you know, do you worship the Lord? Do you love Jesus? I'm assuming you're going to say yes to both of those, okay? If, if you're in the Lord. I want to know, have you allowed in your own life, have you preserved that category that's polluted? Where you've invited something in that is so antithetical to the Lord, into your life, into your family's life? Because the Lord here is saying, it's getting in the way of worship. Okay. In case you doubt his tone, look at verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. I mean, he's saying cast them out, cut them out, place them away, curse them. That to, to invite a foreign God, to invite idolatry this close and then still live under the pretense that you're worshiping. He says, there's, there's no possible way that can be together. Put that person out. Verses 13 and 14 open up the door, I think, to a deeper problem. This is what he says. In this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Thirteen says, okay, here's the second thing. You go up to the altar and you boo-hoo all over the altar because the Lord is not answering your prayers and you, and, you, and you weep and you mourn because somehow he's not hearing. To which he almost inserts them going, yeah, why doesn't he do that? And he says, well, I'll tell you why, you don't, why he doesn't answer your prayers. He doesn't answer your prayers because he was present at your wedding. And you've been, that word faithless there, treacherous, betrayer, infidel. Okay, you have abandoned the wife of your youth, the wife of that covenant. You had a covenant with her and you broke it. And you're coming to me, the God of covenant. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I was there. And you've, he's later going to call this violence because certainly in this period of time, right, this was a more extreme period of time where functionally the women of the community were dependent upon being in a home somewhere, being part of a household somewhere, being threaded in somewhere. And so for a husband to just put her out, he's going to call violence. He's going to say, he thinks, God thinks, he thinks. That's the wild injustice in that.
I want to say this is not a topical sermon on divorce. It doesn't attend to every issue. It doesn't, it's not addressing all the categories. He's not saying that he understands all of, if you're here this morning, and, and this is where I'm committed to preaching the tone and volume of the text in light of the fact that we have a great Savior. But he's not saying that he knows all your circumstances. He's indicting those circumstances. What he's doing is preaching to a, a cultural problem that's happening in Israel, which is the people, the men of Israel, no longer feel bound by the covenant of marriage in the way that God would intend. And they're abandoning their wives to, I guess, be happy. I guess pursue, I mean, God forbid, pursue a wife from a foreign God. I mean, that would be the worst of both worlds. But they're abandoning their wife so as to be more conveniently free. I mean, you could fill in the blank. These, these issues are not alien to us. This is an accusation of the people who are frustrated that God is silent in their prayers and yet have no regard for his teaching in their life. They want to worship a God, but they don't want the, the law of God to shape their living. They don't want the teachings of God to order what they think is true and right in this life. And I will say this, it all goes back to, I, do, I think, it all goes back to, do you believe God loves you? you know, when people don't believe that God is personal and loves them, then it's hard for them to worship God. It's hard for them to offer right worship, which was last week. And when it's hard to really worship the Lord, it's hard to take his teachings seriously. I think it's progressive. If you don't really think God loves you and, you really, and, and God is not personal to you, then how, how is this Bible supposed to have any staying power with you? God is here to say, I am personally troubled by the fact that you walk away from the altar and disregard my covenant. And we could say, here it's divorce, but we could generalize this, we certainly could generalize this to all sorts of things in life. Where are you walking away from worship and then doing what seems right by you, doing what makes you happy, regardless of what God's word says? In this case, men are abandoning abandoning their wives of their youth. More is said here in 15 and 16. Let's just look at this. God goes on to say, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Actually, let me pause real quickly. 15 and 16 are really hard verses to translate. Really hard. So pretty much, there's pretty strong agreement of the translators as to the gist of 15 and 16. What's he talking to? But if, as I read, you may look in your Bible and go, wow, I got it a lot different than he has. I still think if you look, the meaning is on the way to the same goal, but this is just very difficult to translate. So let me start over again. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit of their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you 
be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God says, wasn't I with you? Present when you came together? Think back in Genesis. Just If we just look at the scriptures even. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord makes the man and then he, out of the man he makes the woman and then he brings them together. He introduces them to each other. And that's where we get the grand statement of for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Right there is where we get it. When Jesus is questioned on marriage and divorce, do you know where he goes? He goes to Genesis 2 and quotes it and adds to it, therefore, what God has joined together. Let no one separate. So God is saying, wasn't I, I was there, I was present. You chose, many of you chose to wed in my house. And he says, he goes on to even give something a little more mysterious. And again, it's hard to translate, but isn't some part of his spirit among you? I get it, gain a sense, you know, when Paul talks about marriage between a man and woman, he says it's a mystery. It's like Christ in the church. There's this, this careful mystery. I, I feel like it's being exposed. This mystery is even being exposed here with the spirit of God being resident. God is saying, this is not some small thing. This isn't whether you read the funny papers before breakfast or after breakfast, this is a big deal to God. He made it, he established it, he's in it, and he cares about it. And the men of Judah are throwing it away. They're discarding it. What's the goal, he says? He says, what was God trying to do at the end of the day? One might want to raise, to make me happy? That's not what he says, okay? The goal was not to make you happy. The goal, he says, was godly offspring. Again, already in my mind, I hear somebody going, oh, here we go. I'm supposed to have kids, or more kids, or it's all about kids. Ah. No, this is... Maybe we should say this. While your happiness is what naturally is always in front of you, it's not first about your happiness. Okay, so it's about something other than that. It's about God's purpose. And your godly offspring contribute to the kingdom in a way that goes on beyond you. That's what he's saying. He's not just one doesn't want you with a full house of liner babies. He he wants a rich kingdom to grow in God's name. That's what he's saying. In fact, we could say this, right? It's, it's wrapped in Genesis. Be fruitful, multiply. It's wrapped in the promise to Abraham. You'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky. You'll be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. God is increasing his kingdom. What is one of the main ways he does that? He does that through godly offspring. I would even say this teaching has power even beyond marriage to someone who's single. I would say you don't even need, especially in Christ, you don't need to be married to appreciate this because the way you and I increase the kingdom of God is not, 
I don't give birth to a godly child. I give birth to an ungodly child. And then I labor so that child is converted. Just like when someone who doesn't know the Lord is discipled and becomes Christian, there's a phrase we use. They're born again, right? They enter into the family of God. You don't have to be married to do that, and it certainly doesn't need to come out of your womb. The people of God are purposefully producing godly offspring. Paul was never married. He has many godly offspring. To Timothy, my son in Jesus Christ. How does he say that? To Titus. This is the introduction of the book of Titus. To Titus, my son in the Lord. How does he do that? He's produced godly offspring. There are Jesus, single, and proud of it. I am his godly offspring. What God is saying here is, you've taken something which I made, I was involved with, I was present in, I witnessed, I've imparted my spirit to for my purpose, and you've made it for yourself. That's what you did. You took it, and you've decided the whole thing, the whole thing of marriage is just for your happiness. Which, by the way, when you gave vows at your wedding, none of them had to do with you. Do you want to, I could recite them to you. I get a lot of practice on it. When you gave your vows, it had to do with what you were, how you were going to pour your life out for them. Do you remember on that great day when you purposed yourself for something more than yourself? I just want to, I will, I will bear witness that if I'm not careful, marriage always falls into how is it helping me? I always, if I am not careful, assume, want happiness. I want to squeeze my marriage for happiness. And God is saying, this is just a prime example. Malachi is giving a prime example of how we worship the Lord and then we walk away and we repurpose everything he's given us for our joy, our perceived joy. And he's saying, true joy is found in my purpose. So guard your spirit carefully. Guard it carefully. Here's the big principle. We cannot define for ourselves what the good life looks like and then go worship the Lord. God has said, I'm going to describe for you what the good life looks like and through that you will worship me. We can't simply say to ourselves, this seems right, or I like that, or I am tired of her, or I've had enough of him. There's, God is saying, listen, listen. True joy comes through godly purpose. I feel like we get to the New Testament and we talk about the grace of Jesus Christ, and we talk about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and very often, in that very discussion, it, a careful negative byproduct of that is that we begin to turn down these teachings. I, I want to make sure you feel forgiven, so I kind of, something in me wants to say, I don't want to use the tone and voice and volume of Malachi, because Malachi is going to preach what true obedience looks like. And if you hear true obedience, what true, true obedience looks like, 
you will feel like you've been disobedient. And then Jesus won't, then I just won't sound that good. But here's the deal. When you truly understand what true obedience looks like, then at last, Jesus has actually done a great thing for you. To understand what God really intends, we can read Malachi and go, it's amen, it's true, but it's not true of me. And then we go to the cross and we go, ah, amen, he stood in my place. And I come back into the scriptures and I see another thing that God intended for me. And I realize I haven't met that standard, but I don't fret because I come back to the cross and I'm reminded that Jesus Christ stands in the way. He's on my side. He boldly lets me approach the Lord with confidence in all of these things. This is what you need is not less truth. It's more truth. And while Jesus Christ has taken care of all of your disobedience, nothing in the Bible has ever rendered obedience obsolete. Obedience is still a response to a loving God. And that's what he's calling for. I'll close with this. Guard yourselves in your spirit. That's what it says. That makes it sound, for all the noise of Malachi, all the noise of Malachi, it ends quiet. Guard yourself in your spirit. It's it's that quiet, be careful. Because inside of you are all sorts of voices telling you all sorts of things that you can live the way that you know you see fit, that you can rely solely on your understanding, that don't you have a right to be happy, or isn't this your chapter in life? Haven't you labored hard enough that now you can take what's yours? All of those voices that stir inside of us, God says, guard yourself. Guard yourself. Those are dangerous voices. So I want to ask you questions as we go to prayer. How would you show in your life, when you, how much in your life, how would you say your life is defined by finding true joy in God or worship, pursue happiness? I worship and then I pursue happiness. That's what the Lord's concerned about is that you come here for worship and then you go pursue happiness. He would say, you never leave you never leave my covenant. How, which describes your life more? Have you stopped and think, well, I had godly offspring, right? I was told to have offspring and you just looked, well, we had three kids, we had godly offspring. Have you ever stopped to think they're not godly when they come out? You have to shepherd them. Have you felt great purpose in that? How much of the marriage, to yourself, how much of your marriage is about you? How much of your life is about you? If you find yourself saying, I hardly ever do what I want to do because I'm so busy doing what I have to do, most of which is what I ought to do. If you find yourself in that land, you're about right. right. Finding a life that has content in doing what you ought to do. I guess my last question is this. Is there a, a word of the Lord, a teaching of Scripture that you've been ignoring? That you want to be able to worship the Lord, but here you have given yourself a certain sort of dispensation. You've allowed yourself in this area, I will, I'm going to live outside of the Word of God. And maybe even you can avoid saying that stuff because you, you haven't even 
really looked at the Word of God. You have a hunch that you know what you'd see if you looked in it, so you haven't looked, but you know, right? You could have asked your grandma what she thought, but you'd know what she'd say because she believed in God, right? So you've surrounded yourself with your friends on this subject, and you know what they're going to say, and they've given you all the affirmation that you have the right to be happy. Is there something like that that you need to confront? Guard yourself in your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we can come to you with this. We can claim that you're always great enough for an honest assessment of ourselves. And so, Lord, may we honestly assess ourselves. May we look at ourselves and in light of what you've said, in light of your intention for us, Lord, may we be able to look at all of our life as purposeful, purposed by you for godliness, for your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we might rise and transcend above the immature desire just to be happy for the more mature joy of being whole. May that be our prayer, Lord. We pray this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.